Everybody. Right? Okay, so you guys know the Taylor Swift song. Uh, good morning, LifePoint. How are y'all? Wonderful. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we'll look at the very last verses uh, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and let me also go ahead and welcome in Frisco. Hi, Frisco. Welcome. You can open your Bibles too. Um, we're excited y'all are with us. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, and let me set it up. Um, I really want to set it up with a question um, like, that goes like this. Um, have you ever in your life, and don't say this out loud, but have you ever thought uh, in your brain, I really hate this person? Okay, just in your mind, has there ever been anyone who you would describe as maybe a, an enemy or a frenemy or a bully or something like that, and you've just had that thought swell up inside of you? I hate this person. I want you to just, in your mind, think about a person who's maybe uh, treated you poorly in life and you've, you've had to struggle with, or maybe in some cases, some of you are saying, I didn't struggle with this. I just openly hated this person and I just did not want to be around them. They hated me. I hated them. That's the way it went. I want to talk about that this morning. I think it would be really helpful as we're looking at God's word this morning that you keep just that mental referent in your, in your mind's eye there because Jesus has some fairly radical things to say about love with respect to those who hate us, who are our enemies, those who persecute us. In fact, after last week's message when we talked about how to love our neighbors, specifically our gay neighbors, I had a church member come up to me and he said this, Doug, um, I, you know, I have some friends who are gay uh, and you know, when I was not a Christian, uh, we had this great relationship and kind of just over the years, we lost touch. I became a Christian. I tried to reconnect with them, and they just spewed venom towards me uh, now that I'm a Christian. And, and his question for me that he wanted me to address in the blog and the podcast was, how do I love those who are just so hateful towards me? And maybe that's where you are. You have people who are just so hateful towards you, and, and you have just no framework, or you have an inconsistent framework on how exactly you're supposed to respond in a way that's loving. And on the one hand, you want to be loving, but you don't want to be a pushover, and you're just not sure. And the cultural examples that you've been handed, maybe the parental examples you've been handed, don't seem like they're adequate enough. Maybe you're just showing up here today, and, and you're just thinking in general, uh, love is great, uh, but, but when it comes to, to things like uh, terrorism, or when it comes to things like people who are committing just heinous crimes, how do I love those people? And Jesus speaks to this issue directly uh, in God's word today. So why don't we pray and jump in and see what, uh, what Jesus has for us, if you'll join me in praying. Jesus, um, I thank you that you've called us to love, and that that love has no asterisk asterisk associated with it. It's not like it's some conditions apply or some people are excluded from this, but that in John three sixteen, you tell us that God loves the whole world. He loves everyone. And part of being in that relationship with you, Jesus, is not only loving you with all of our heart and being, being completely recklessly devoted to you, but it's also um, radically loving other people as well. And so as we think about today how to love those who, who hate us and who persecute us. Uh, I pray that you would just be glorified in the process and you would um, move us on in maturity as disciples who want to live in your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read, read from the English Standard Version, conveniently printed in your bulletin if you want to look at that translation. Here's what Jesus says. Remember, 
He's just started the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is Jesus' big teaching. Uh, so he's, he's kind of on a, on a raised area. There are all these people sitting and listening, and he is just waxing theological here, trying to help people see, the, the catch the vision for the bigness of who God is. And he gets to this very practical teaching uh, in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus writes this or says this, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, there's this common myth floating around at that time period that it's okay to love your neighbor on the one hand, but your enemy, it's perfectly acceptable as a Jewish believer, as a Christian believer, to hate your enemy. He says, you've heard this, but I'm going to tell you this. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who only love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Life point, I want you guys uh, and, and girls, uh, to notice three things in this passage, three things we're gonna just rally around here this morning before making some practical application. And the first thing is this, and if, you, if you're a bulletin note taker, you might wanna fill this in. Uh, the first thing, we are commanded to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We are commanded. This is not an option for those who are spiritually mature. Loving your enemies is not something you can think about doing at some point in your life. It's not seasonal. It's, it's not something that's elective. This is a command. Jesus is in, a, in essence saying, if you want to follow me and follow in my way of living, that way that's going to lead to abundant life, then you must love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not an option, not elective. It's got to be part of and parcel of who you are as a human being. You must love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I want you guys just to note this. It would be one thing if Jesus said this and then we never talked about it again in the Bible, right? So we could be tempted in our flesh to go, well, I know Jesus said that, but who can really live the ideal? It's not like this is a pervasive New Testament teaching. Hold the phone there. Uh, I want you to just notice, we, if, if we said there were maybe three rock stars in the New Testament, you have Jesus, who's the front man, right? He's the front man of the rock band. And then the other guys in this kind of trio here, you've got Peter and you've got Paul, right? These are the other two prominent um, luminaries in the New Testament. And both of them speak to this issue. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, in fact, you have in your bulletin there, Paul writes this, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Similarly, Peter writes in his letter, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
See, this is something that's so critical to following Christ, that you love everyone, including and especially your enemies, that it gets repeated by the, the two most popular disciples uh, after him. It, it's something that's critical to being a Christ follower. This is not, this is not advanced Jesus following. This is elementary Jesus following. It's something when you become a Christian, you understand implicitly, I'm supposed to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. And as Peter says, and bless them. We'll get to blessing in a little bit. But here's the things I want, you, want us to take away from this first observation. There are two things that are in your bulletin. Number one, if you are consumed by hating your enemies, then you're living by your standard of righteousness and not God's standard of righteousness. The problem with not loving our enemies is if we're people who say, no, I'm, I'm not gonna love my enemies, then, then I'm not gonna pray for people who persecute me, then you're living by your standard of righteousness and not God's standard of righteousness. You know how uh, you guys go to amusement parks, especially when springtime hits, Six Flags opens up, right? You go and there are certain things, certain rides where you go and it says, must be this tall to ride or must be this tall to ride, right? Y'all are familiar with that concept? Maybe it's not at Six Flags, but definitely when like one of the rickety carnivals comes to town and like opens up in the Life Point parking lot and you're like, yeah, this has been inspected. This is totally safe. Just come on, uh, right? You up there, there's the one sign that says, must be this tall to ride. Right? Well, in every human heart, everyone who's here today, everyone who's at Frisco, we all have this standard of righteousness, must be this tall to be considered righteous. The problem is, if, if we determine what it means to be righteous, it's a constantly lowering and raising standard because it's always gonna be based on what we think is righteous, which moment by moment, it changes. But God's standard for righteousness is Jesus. And so when he looks and thinks and, and, and gives vision for loving people, the standard he sets for righteousness, righteous loving is Jesus. And one of the problems with loving our enemies or not loving our enemies is that when we're setting the standard for righteousness, we can, we can raise and lower that standard depending on if we like the person or not. You know, today I'm feeling quite Christianly. And so, okay, you know what? I'll love my enemy. But tomorrow I'm not feeling very Christianly. Uh, and so I'm gonna lower that standard. And you're like, no, forget that guy. I don't, you know, ugh, I hate him, right? Again, if, if the, the problem is if we're consumed by hating our enemies, we're living by our standard, not God's standard. The second one is this. Keep in mind that if someone has offended you, they have also offended God. If someone's offended you, they've also offended God. In Genesis, the little uh, 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 verse here that kind of helps support that is right at the beginning of creation, God writes this. So God, or I guess Moses writes what God's telling him. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All human beings, life point, are created in God's image. And so when one human being offends another human being, that first human being that's doing the offending doesn't just offend the human being. The human being offends God because that human being was made in God's image. When our enemies offend us, when they hate us, when they persecute us, yes, there's a whole conversation to be had about us being offended, our feelings being hurt, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a much more important conversation to be had, and that is that human being is offending God. And so the question I wanna ask you, especially maybe if you find yourself in one of those moments, maybe in your mind's eye, you're thinking about the person that you hate or are presently struggling with hating. When that person offends you, when that person persecutes you, are you, you can ask yourself this, are you more concerned that they offended you or are you more concerned that they offended God? 
Because as we're going to talk about in a little bit, at the end of the day, your, your wrathful vengeance is going to be fairly limited. But the reality is at the end of all of this, God's wrathful vengeance is going to be supreme. And so I hope that sobers us here this morning that it's not our standard of righteousness, it's Jesus' standard of righteousness. And really, when it comes to people, God made everybody in his image and he wants us all to love one another because we are his image bearers and he cares and loves for us all. So point one, we're commanded to love our enemies and pray for those. Number two, I want you to notice this life point, that God's common grace, uh, it it undermines our self-centered standards for justice and for fairness. God's common grace, it undermines our standards uh, for uh, uh, self-centered standards for justice and fairness. And so what Jesus writes this is, um, for he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so you get the idea here that, that rain is common to everyone, sunrise is common to everyone. There's, just, there's this common world that everybody lives in. God gives grace to everyone kind of in a common way here uh, by bringing rain for, for fruitfulness or by bringing sun for kind of something that's going to be uh, beneficial for us. Um, I had this roommate in college uh, whose mother was from Columbia. And I remember the first time she came over, right? And uh, like she came to get him. So I'm just, you know, I'm in my room and I knew his mom was coming in. So mom just like comes upstairs and is like, hello, nice to meet you. Like nice Latin American greeting hug, kiss on the cheek. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Like that was, that was just kind of doing my American thing of like, whoa, boundaries here, right? No, but she's so generous, so overwhelmed. I mean, just great. And so she decides to take him to lunch. She goes, would you like to come with? And I was like, sure, I'll go for a free lunch. So takes us to this really nice restaurant. And I remember as she's leaving, she gives her son this kind of stack of money. She was like, hey, you're a college student, you need more money. And I was like, man, that's a really cool mom. And then she turns to me and she gives me a stack of money. And I was like, this is a very cool mom, right? Come back anytime. Can I buy you a plane ticket? Like, you know, how do we do this, right? And so I was just shocked in that moment. I was like, thank you. I'm looking at my roommate. Can I accept this? Should I give this to you later? Like, I don't know what the situation is here. And she says this. It's really wonderful. She goes, Doug, there's this Colombian proverb. When it rains, everybody gets wet. And I was like, oh, that's wonderful. I love that. And I think this is what Jesus is saying here. Hey, listen, when it rains, everybody gets wet. And when the sun comes out, everyone, everybody gets warmed, uh, warmed by that. Because there's this common grace that God gives to everybody. And in part, he does this so that we come to recognize, all of us, that our self-centered standard for what is right and wrong cannot be the standard uh, for everybody. It can be a standard for us, maybe, although the better thing, as Jesus says, the thing that's really going to bring us life is to understand that Jesus is the standard for righteousness. And if that's true, then we have these two takeaways here that you can write down. Number one, and, and these are critically important. I would just pass these along to everybody. These are critically important. Number one, good things in life are not a validation of righteousness. Good things that happen to you, they're not a validation of your righteousness. They're not. And similarly, bad things in life, bad things that happen to you, are not a confirmation of your wickedness. So good things are not a validation of righteousness. Bad things are not a validation of your wickedness. Why? Because God gives common grace to everybody. He makes the sunrise on everybody. He makes rain fall on everybody the same because he loves everyone. And there's this common layer of grace he gives to everyone. Natalie and I understood this principle just vividly in our, in our experience of the human life 
when we were going through infertility. And I'm, I've told the story several times, but uh, you know, Natalie and I just thought, you know, you're going to get married. You're going to, you know, you love Jesus, get married. You do all the right things, like don't have sex before marriage, then get married, and then you know, then you go into marriage and you you only sleep with your spouse and follow all this moral law when it comes to sexual ethics. And then when you're ready, because human beings are in control of this, obviously. You know, you, you know, do whatever measures you have to take and, you know, you get ready, you say, I, you declare, I want a kid. And so then you kind of do what married couples do, right, to try to have kids. And then every month there's, there's no pregnancy, right? It's like, oh, it's the first month you're like, okay, well, we'll keep trying. And, you know, you're like, okay, yeah, we'll keep trying, right? Uh, and so you keep trying and then a year goes by, no kids, and two years goes by, no kids, and three years goes by, no kids. And you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you guys have some significant infertility issues. Kids, biological kids might not be in, in store for you. So we'll try some things, right? And, and maybe you should be thinking about adoption because that might be how the Lord provides kids for you. And we went through this, this heartbreaking period of infertility where no matter what we're trying, we couldn't have kids. Now keep that in mind. We're trying, we're following Jesus. We're trying to do all the right things here. And yet that result is not coming about. And it seems a little bit unjust. It's unfair. We're going to God going, this is incredibly unfair, God. We've been following you. You're supposed to give us kids. It's in the Bible. Bible, right? There's this promise that if you just follow Jesus, he'll make everything puppy dogs and unicorns for you, right? We keep trying to find that verse. It's not there. I'm doing a Google search, nothing in there. And we just feel like this incredible sense of injustice. And then, and then, and then all of our friends around us, right? Especially our real crazy shady friends who don't love Jesus. They just like drunkenly get pregnant one night and you're just like, like this is our entire prayer life. There's, there's, this, there's this time in, in Romans 8 where Paul writes, there's, there's a praying that's so deep. It's just groans that go forth to God, right? And I understand that because we're just like, we're like Jerry Seinfeld going to God in prayer. Oh, what is the deal with all these people getting praying? Oh, right? That's all you have because there are no words. And then to make matters worse, my wife is a high school teacher. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Uh, and she shows up and one of her students is pregnant. And she's like, ah, Jesus, like, what is ever? It's just like, it's just so unfair. And, and we, there was one thing we just had to keep quoting over and over to ourselves, and it's this. Pregnancy is not a validation of righteousness, right? Your, your kid growing up and being a follower of Jesus and being a, a productive member of society is not a validation of your parenting righteousness, you know? Um, you doing all the financial things appropriate and being a good worker, having long-term you know, financial security is not a validation of your righteousness. Always having a job is not a validation of righteousness. Being an American is not a validation of your righteousness. None of that's a validation of righteousness. And similarly, when bad things come upon you, like infertility or a child who walks away from the Lord or job loss or cancer or something like that, none of that is confirmation of your wickedness. Why? Because we live in this world where the fall applies to everybody equally, and also there's a common grace that applies to everybody equally. And I think, life point, we just got to embrace that. You got to know that from the beginning as you get into this deal, because you're, you're going to be tempted when, when bad things happen or when good things happen to then go, oh, it's my standard, it's my standard, it's my standard. And it's not. Jesus is always the standard. And everything else has an explanation. It's either it's God's common grace or it's just the fall. And sometimes bad things happen and good things happen. It's not about you. 
It's because God's doing something larger, and he wants to produce some good in you through some trials. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So, God's common grace to all humans undermines our self-centered standards for justice and fairness. Number three, as Christians, as Christians, we don't build character by doing what we are supposed to do. As Christians, we build character by trusting Jesus in the midst of trials. And James writes this. James, the brother of Jesus, who knew Jesus, right, grew up with Jesus, writes this. Account it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, and he's using the same terminology Jesus uses, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, There's this comedian and social critic named Chris Rock who's actually hosting the Oscars tonight if you're into that sort of thing. And Chris Rock has this great bit, which I will clean up for a church audience because it's NSFC, not safe for church, right? Uh, But he basically says this. He says, you know, he has friends all the time that come up to him and they're like, they're bragging. They're like, I'm a good dad. I don't ever beat my kids. I'm a good dad. Or he has friends who come up and go, I'm a good husband, you know? I never cheat on my wife. Never cheat on my wife. I'm a good husband. And he always wants to look at him and go, fool, you foolish man, you're not supposed to beat your kids. You're not supposed to cheat on your wife. You don't get credit for that, right? You're just, that's foolishness. You don't get credit for what you're supposed to do, right? And I think this is what Jesus is saying. You don't get credit for loving the people who love you, right? You get credit for loving hard people. If you wanna get credit, if you wanna be in the credit gaining business, LifePoint Church, Just being like, oh, I come to church all the time and I love other Christians and I huddle with other Christians all the time. I never am around non-Christians and I just, you know, you don't get credit for that. And and I'm sorry if maybe you're here today thinking somehow God's gonna be like, oh, you showed up to church today. Well, okay, check. I'm gonna note that, right? No, showing up to to church is what you're supposed to do. You don't get credit for that. Here, if if we wanna do credit, Jesus says, if you wanna do credit, you get credit for things like loving your enemies, and for praying for those who persecute you. Because that requires, that's gonna have some pushback to it. And it's gonna require you to persevere and lean into Jesus a little bit more. And in that process of leaning in, in that trial, Jesus is going to produce uh, steadfastness in you and resolve in you, and he is going to mature you in your faith. Sanctification is the process of God making you more like Jesus, generally speaking, through trials. He's going to take you through trials because you don't get credit for things you're supposed to do. That's really obvious. You get, you get uh, credit or you get spiritual development by trusting Jesus in the midst of trials. So that's what Jesus says. Those are three big things. Uh, I'll just repeat them. Number one, we're commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Number two, God's common grace to all humans undermines our self-centered standards for justice and fairness. And number three, as Christians, we build character by doing what we are supposed to do um, not uh, by trust, uh, we don't build character by what we're supposed to do. We build character rather by trusting Jesus in the midst of trials. Let me get real practical here. With those three things in mind, I want to just do this. I want to talk about a few a few things that um, that, or rather, this what it doesn't look like or what it does not look like to love my enemy and what it looks like to love my enemy. Okay, so you have this person in your mind who's been the person that's your enemy that you hate. And you hear all this and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I think this probably means, and you kind of are just filling in the blank. Some of you are on Pinterest right now looking up you know, creative ways to love your enemy and you're thinking, I don't know if I can be on board with that or whatever. L- let me just kind of first kind of take the, the steam out of the room here and say, here's what I don't think it looks like to love your enemy and here's what I think it does. And so here's four things that 
uh, ways it doesn't look like to love your enemy. Number one, it does not mean that you must become best friends with them, although God might make that happen. So you have the enemy in your mind. I don't think it's realistic to think, hey, God is overnight, because you're a believer, gonna make you guys into best friends. You see that in movies all the time. They're the people who hate each other, but by the end of the movie, they're best friends, right? Again, I think that works for film. I don't know that that's real life. Now, God might make that happen, but just I don't think the goal of loving your enemies is to become best friends with them. I just don't. Um, I think it's something else going on. Number two, or the second thing here, it does not mean that you forget that they have historically been wicked towards you. Right, you hear this phrase all the time, forgive and forget. Not really a biblical phrase. Yes, forgive, but we're called to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's the calling. And part of wisdom here, believers, is remembering that there's this person over here and past behavior is the best historical indicator of future behavior. So we need to forgive them for what they've done in the past while also going, yeah, that person might be a little shady, might have some things. I, I might need to you know, really think through how I relate with them. So it doesn't mean that you should forget. Number three, it does not mean that you stop setting healthy boundaries, okay? Yes, this person has been historically hateful towards me. I'm gonna forgive them because they're made in the image of God. But I'm gonna remember that they had this really uh, shady character going on. And so I need to make sure to set up important boundaries, not only to protect me, that's not the goal here, but also to, to keep them from doing further harm to themselves or to other people. Set healthy boundaries. It's really okay. And number four here, it does not mean that you excuse their actions or behaviors. It doesn't mean that you excuse their actions or behaviors. You don't get into the habit of enabling them. Well, I know that's a bad person, but they're really good at heart. No, it's really okay for you to go, hey, listen, that person harmed me, but they're made in the image of God. And although their heart is black to the core because they don't know Jesus, right? This is, when, this is when you get to pull out the stuff. I'm not excusing their behavior. They're a terrible person, but they are a person made in the image of God. And because of that, we have to love them and, and pray for them and bless them. And I know that's hard to do. And so let me talk about the four ways it does look like to love your enemy, things I wanna challenge you with. Number one, it means you truly forgive them. It means you truly forgive them. It doesn't just mean like we do all the time, I'll pray for you, and then you leave and you never pray for them, right? It's not like, oh, I'll forgive you, in theory, right? And you just walk away and you're like, no, forget that guy, right? I don't like him. No, it means you truly forgive them. Do whatever you have to do. Set a reminder on your phone. Go home and pray. If you don't forgive them the first night, work, it on, work on it the second night. Work on it the third night. Work on it the fourth night until you really do forgive them. Well, what does that mean? Here's some uh, sub-practical things. It means that you strive to look for good qualities in them. Yes, they may be a bad person, but as the, the, the Catholic Saint Augustine was famous of saying, he says, everybody is motivated by love ultimately. Some people pervert love towards a wicked end, but everyone's motivated by love. No one does things because they have hate in their heart. People do things because they have this misappropriated or this self-centered love that's out of order with who God is. And so I think it's, it's perfectly okay if you see someone who hates you to go, listen, I really don't care for that person. Again, bad person, not making excuses for them, made in the image of God. But yeah, I understand there are some good qualities in them because that process of trying to find some good is gonna help you be a balanced and fair person towards them, to have a loving Christ-like disposition towards them. Even though you've forgiven them, even though you recognize and remember everything that they've done, even though you set boundaries, 
you can go, okay, I recognize there is some good they bring to the table. The worst thing to do, and we do this from time to time, and you guys know this, right? You begin to hate somebody, and then nothing they do is good, right? You know what's happening? Like, this happens all the time in politics, right? I mean, you guys are, I'm sure, watching this now. There's like a politician who comes on the scene, and like one time that politician like misquoted something in a debate or something, or they, you know, when they were, you know, 20, they filed their taxes wrong, and this comes out in a smear campaign, and all of a sudden, like, the narrative turns, and then everyone hates that candidate or whatever, and then that, that candidate can just do no good, and it's just like every attack ad is like, this is the worst person ever, right? We have our own little attack ad company in our brains, right? We do that to people. You know, someone does something bad to us, and, you know, on the first day, you're like, oh, I love these, my new neighbors. They just moved in. They're great. Then, like, you wake up and the neighbor is blowing their leaves into your yard, like crossing over the boundary line, and you're like, forget that guy. He's dead to me, right? You put him in the doghouse, and then, like, he shows up the next morning. You're watching him just simply go to get mail, and you're like, look at that arrogant jerk going to get his mail all haughty and proud. What do you think? You're better than me, right? And now hatred has consumed your heart, and everything they do is bad. No, no, no. Listen, there's good, and God has made everybody in, their, in his image, and so he's put some good qualities in everybody, and Part of the process of loving them is trying to honestly evaluate them and see what good they do bring to the table. Number three, quickly, it means that you pray for God to bless them and you mean it. You sit down maybe the first time with gritted teeth, you go, Lord, I don't like that person and he didn't like me and we have an understanding, but I'm not gonna live like John Wayne anymore. I'm gonna live like Jesus. And so I pray that you bless them, right? First day is a little hard, but after a while, you go, oh, man, I'm so mad at them. But you know what? Lord, bless them. I really do pray that you bless them so you mean it. And finally, it means that you become legitimately burdened for their repentance. You become legitimately burdened for their repentance. Now, let me conclude with this. Everyone has had that person in their mind that they think about, that they just go, oh, I just don't like this person. I hate this person. And I remember growing up uh, being that kind of person. In fact, there were a lot of people that made it into my doghouse. I was, I was bullied a lot as a kid um, for a number of different reasons. And just there were a number of tormentors in my middle school and my high school who just went out of their way to pick on me. Um, and really, especially as a non-Christian, I just developed a lot of hatred in my heart for them. And I remember as an eighth grader, as a ninth grader, as a 10th grader thinking, one day I'm gonna be a successful member of society. And based on their behavior, I can tell they're not going to be a successful member of society, and I can't wait to come back to my 10-year reunion and see those people and just laugh in their faces, right? I mean, like super evil stuff as a ninth grader, right? I'm going to be there, they're going to be dancing, and I'm just going to like pour a drink on them and be like, ha, and drop the mic and walk out, right? Yeah, I'm a pastor of a church in Plano. What? Where are you? Yeah, that's what I talk, yeah, I'm in Collin County, son, Right? Have you seen our gross domestic product? Texas should be blessed to have us in the, in the state, right? I'm, the be- I just, I like, I'm just already like, yeah, like ready. And I just, I just wanted to rub it in their faces, right? I just was so, this is what got me through ninth grade year, just this motivation of hatred to, towards these people. And I just could, I, I just remember thinking as a ninth grader, like I would love to be there on the day then one, when one of them gets fired from their jobs because they're incompetent or because they're mean and they're bullying people. And I would just laugh in their faces. And I just, you know, as a ninth grader, you take it to the extreme. You're like, yeah, or maybe they're doing something really foolish and they die, <laughs> right? And I'm just like, I wanna be there. And, and I was just thinking, and I remember I became a Christian when I was 16 and I'm in college. And for whatever reason, I came home for something and I saw one of them. And all of a sudden that hatred I had in my heart kind of flared back up. And I was trying to like 
relive the, the hatred of my heart towards them, but now I have Jesus living in me. And I just remember Jesus just spoke to me in that moment as I'm thinking about that person dying and being happy that they're off this earth and not tormenting people anymore. And, and there's, there's just this, this phrase that he just spoke into my spirit. He said this, Doug, no one smiles at an execution. Think about that. In a public execution, there's never anybody smiling. If your worst enemy was publicly hanged in a, in a common place and you got to stand there and view it, you wouldn't be smiling. You would be weeping because that's the end of a life. And there is now no longer any possibility of repentance and change. And if that person died without knowing Christ, you know what? That person is going to be in hell. There's nothing to laugh about when it comes to that scenario. I think at the end of our lives, we are our people, especially as we mature, we're the kind of people who embrace this idea that we're called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us because we don't want them to ultimately have to suffer God's wrath at the end. There is a possibility they could have life change and they could have a new nature put in them and they could become believers and then we could see them one day in heaven. They're on the other side of heaven, right? But we're at least there together, right? Praising God. There's this quote I want to leave you guys with because it, it just summarizes everything here. It's by a, a theologian, um, and he gets a lot wrong, but I think in this issue he gets this right. He says this. His name is Miroslav Volf. He says, if you want justice and only justice, at the end of the day, you're going to get injustice because that's your self-standard of righteousness. But if you want justice without injustice, what you really want is love. And so life point. My prayer for you today is this, that you would become people who love your enemies so that love would be your standard of, of seeing God's justice come into the lives of believers because uh, we want to let Christ's righteousness transform our enemies so that they can be rightly oriented with the abundant life that he's promised even to them, even to them. Let's pray. And as I'm praying, the ushers are going to come forward and we're going to pass baskets here in a little bit. Jesus, I thank you that you have called us to love our enemies and that you haven't made your standard of righteousness, each of us, but you've made you the standard of righteousness, you who are perfect and fair and good all the time. And so I pray for LifePoint that we would become the kind of people who love our enemies and who pray for those who persecute us, who bless them and who mean it, and who by maybe some miraculous work of God and move of God, see our enemies come to put faith in Jesus so that they don't have to stand before him one day and give account for all of their uh, horrible uh, lifestyle of living and things that they've, uh, evil they've perpetrated on others. And so God, make us in the kind of charitable, loving people that you want your people to be, that we could truly love you and love others. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, our ushers are gonna begin.